Hey, everybody, it's Mitch Slater. Thank you so much for joining Financially Speaking this week. We have got a really special show for you. Put another dime in the jukebox. We got Ricky Bird, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, guitarist, singer, songwriter, inducted in 2015 with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. You know, all those riffs that you love and that live Joan Jett music. This is Ricky Bird. Ricky, although he's best known for his time spent there, he's played with Roger Daltrey. He's toured with Ian Hunter, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. He's played with McCartney, Ringo, Springsteen, Jimmy Page, Brian Wilson, Smokey Robinson, Elvis Costello. I could go on from there, but we're going to cover all that in the podcast. But really the most important part of what I hope your takeaway is, is what Ricky's fond of saying, that one of the greatest gifts that he's been given happened in September of 1987 when he started his journey in recovery. As Ricky put it, it was time. He's been clean and sober ever since, doing whatever he can to help others recover. It's his passion and what he's most proud of, and that's what we're going to talk about. Kevin Kelly, a colleague of mine at UBS, who has a master's in clinical mental health counseling and licensed here in the great state of New Jersey, is going to join us for that part of the conversation. You are not going to want to miss that. We're going to talk a lot about this new record, Sobering Times, his second record, kind of after Clean Getaway, talking about sobriety. On this record, you've got Willie Nile, Emily Duff. You've got a Merle Haggard song. But most of all, it really rocks. It's really great music. So sit back, enjoy a great time, a great interview. We even talk about life in the Catskills. You never know where you're going to go from Financially Speaking. And when I bring in a guy like Ricky Bird, who grew up in the Bronx, a block away from Yankee Stadium, you know we may be talking some baseball. Enjoy the show, folks. Well, first of all, Ricky, so glad we're finally getting this show on the road to speak, even if it is on the Zoom highway. We have a lot of really important ground to cover, but I got to tell you something that I don't think I've ever told you before, that my journey with you really started in D.C. When I was a young college DJ, I was, you know, at WRGW, but I was also working at D.C. 101 doing overnights. And I was given tickets to see Graham Parker and the rumor on squeezing out Sparks tour. Yes. Which is like still top 10 favorite record of all time. And, And my Springsteen friends would, you know, wouldn't believe it, but... Yes, I do listen to other music, all right? Just get mm-hmm. over it. Anyway, you're the warm-up band, right? Yes. I was in a band called Susan. We, we did one record for RCA, and that was my first national tour. I must have been 21 or something like that. But yeah, we opened for Graham Parker and the Rumor across the country. 79, maybe, Ricky? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did the record. Maybe we recorded the record in 78 or something. Yeah. Like that. yeah, I'm horrible with years. Yeah, well, it was my sophomore year at GW. And I went, I just, you know, I was at the Bayou every weekend, almost seeing shows, which isn't there anymore, which was a great club. And I'm pretty sure that's where you guys played. Was, it, was that a theater in the round? Actually, yes. Bayou was the theater in the round. Yeah. yeah so, they had a little so, balcony, too. So we, I mean, I know who Grandpa was. Unless you played Lisner. You could have played Lisner Auditorium, but that's kind of a big house. That's, that's like seven lives ago. I don't yeah. know how I remember. <laughs> you know, we'll get into this, but the kind of music that I was always in love with was, it came from Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And they turned me on to, in turn, they turned me on to the deep cuts of blues, you know. 
but Graham Parker, I love Graham Parker, and I love Brinsley Schwartz, his guitar yeah. player, oh, right? Fantastic. So I would actually watch him play every night, and I had a few conversations with him about you know lead guitar solos and stuff, about playing the melody. So I learned a lot from that tour, and it was literally my first tour. So uh, right across the country, we, mm-hmm. you know, we had a. It was wonderful, you know, because that's. that's- I was waiting well, to do that my whole life. I was, right? I, you know, it was, I was just so pumped to go see that show because I had the record. You know, it was out maybe for four or five weeks. And did you have and the I blue just, vinyl? Yeah, of course I did. And yeah, then I got the and then the live first it came out as a bootleg, I guess. And then somehow, oh no, it was a radio station copy. It was right. a live concert. I forget. I'm not. Do you remember where the live? Where that was, I don't even know where that was recorded. But they the recorded it live because throughout each song, he makes different comments. I want you all back alive. And, you know, the audience goes crazy. That's great. I I still have the pins. Like he had pins for local girls and, Mm -hmm. you know, love gets you twisted. Yeah. Little yellow pins from the tour. I still have them somewhere in like with all the rest of the pins. You can't be too strong. Might be one of the coolest written songs ever. I just incredibly. Yeah. And and we, we went, (laughs) we went over great. I mean, it was a different kind of audience, I guess, for the kind of music we were kind of like the raspberries ish, I guess you would say. And um, I still have people that come over to me or, you know, message me and say, hey, man, I, I just pulled out my Susan record, man. It's still one of my favorite records. And I have the blue vinyl record. I got it. So, yeah, it was a cool band. Yeah. No, we was, played. Listen, we played you at WRGW. We, right. Taking it over was the single. Yes. Taking it over. Yeah. We also um, told everybody that we found the clash, too. It was a really crazy time. <laughs> so anyway, there's a lot of places that we could go here. I don't even know if I can still quote Dr. Seuss. I don't know. Is that OK? But whatever. We're going to focus on your new record, Sobering Times, OK, yeah. and how you've used your crazy creative talent to channel a message of hope for those hopeless. Every fairy tale has to start somewhere. So why not the Bronx? Right. Good, so, good memories growing up in the Bronx, Ricky. Oh, yeah, man. I lived there until maybe I was 12 or 13. In fact, on my screen here. So I'm down. I know this is not visual, but I'm down in my basement. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the backstory is I had this beautiful finished basement down here where I had a little Pro Tool studio. And actually, my first solo full record lifer, we did all the guitar tracks here and Hurricane Sandy took care of that. Right. So we have hesitated to refinish it again because it was such a traumatic event. <laughs> like it really, it filled the whole basement filled up and then a little bit of the first floor. But I think we're heading in that direction because we, we start thinking about all the people that live by the water and they just rebuilt, right? You rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had to. They don't run away. They just rebuilt. So yeah. I'm starting to, I'm putting together a little studio down here. You know, I got my desk. I got my new iMac. I got my software. I just downloaded Pro Tools and stuff. But it's all concrete, you know, around me is concrete to bear to the walls again. So what I have behind me, I know nobody could see it except you, is my um, photography. I go on Amazon <laughs> and I get these photography backgrounds. Yeah. And this one, um, I had a purple one, my Prince kind of. Yeah, no, no. It was very Prince and, yeah, and was, Lil Van Zandt too. Yeah. It was basically a tablecloth I got off of Amazon. <laughs> Listen, I have a green screen over there. It's from China for $19. Right. I bought the beginning of the pandemic. The but this damn, is, damn things never worked. This right. is my Turkish prison hostage <laughs> video backdrop. And uh, Ricky but, is not blindfolded, just so everybody yeah, yeah. knows. Uh, but on my screen, I have a picture yeah. of my building from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And whenever I get somebody, I show it to them and I say, you see, we were on the top floor, sixth floor. Right. So a lot of stuff happened in that building, man. It was like I was into baseball. Yankee well, I was going to say you were right in the shadows of Yankee Stadium. I like, couldn't well, you see yeah. lights at night. 
pretty well, much. Well, you could or? see. So this photo that I have mm-hmm. that I just got online, you know, I just put my address in and it came up. You could see my kitchen window, our kitchen window. When we lived with my grandparents, we had two apartments. One was when my parents were still together. It was mm-hmm. on one side. And then when my parents divorced, we moved in with my grandparents. And the kitchen window, you could see the stadium from the window. You couldn't really see in the stadium. You could see some of the stands and the lights. But the thing is, if I had like a transistor radio, transistor radio, <laughs> he's it's 85, okay. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's all right. With the, um, white, with the white earphone, I listen to yeah. the West Coast games. So the two things, sports. it served two purposes. It was the Yankee games. Right. right? And so you would hear it on the radio, right? You'd hear it on, you'd hear Mickey Mantle hit a home run. Right. Then you'd hear, so you'd hear the crowd from the radio, but then you would hear because of sound That's traveling. That's so cool. That's then you so would hear cool. the roar of the crowd for real, right? Or is oh, it the man. other way around? It's one or the other. Yeah. And the other purpose that little radio served was obviously listening to New York radio stations, AM stations, which yeah. was where I soaked in all my influences at the time. And so well, we, we listened to WABC, yeah, MCA, MCA, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, cousin Brucey, uh, yes. And yeah. on the roof, my mom would set up the card table, right, and then she would play with her friends sometimes in the summer, right. So what would they do? They throw a sheet down to the kids on the hot tar, which is why we call it Tar Beach. <laughs> and I would be there listening to uh, Tommy James and the Shondells, and mm-hmm. it's interesting because when I ran into um, Van Zant after not seeing him for ages, right. it was for a Southside record release somewhere in the city. And I can't remember mm-hmm. where it was. And the first thing I said to him is like, I love Underground Garage because it reminds me of being a kid listening to AM radio. Which I went, And what I meant by that is you would hear Sinatra singing Strangers in the Night. Then you would hear the Stones. Mm-hmm. And then you would hear Trini Lopez. And then right. you would hear... Nancy you know, Sinatra. <laughs> Nancy Sinatra. Then you would hear Wilson Pickett. And right. you would hear... And that's what his station's like. <laughs> oh, and and that, and that's exactly. And listen, that's exactly what he wants. And my my buddy Rich Russo, who is real, does a show on uh, Underground Jersey guy, right, and right, he right. does. Rich has done a lot of progressive radio, and I mean, this guy's got the greatest, you know, music library. His house is just wall to wall. It's like he literally has the ta- the stuff that was left to Tower Records somehow got left to him. But anyway, I mean, that, well, it just I, that I music think- is great. And I think there's a definite, you could actually say that people that are growing up today, I mean, Sirius XM is fabulous. Mm-hmm. I have it in my car, I have it in my house. But all the stations are separate. So there's the country station. Right. There's the rock and roll station. There's classic rock. There's right. deep cuts. There's- Underground's the only one where it's just right. kind of all So the point is, is fusion. It, you don't, the reason why I'm so well-versed in different kinds of music and why I love different kinds of music is because AM radio fed me different kinds of music. Yeah, it did. It did. Right? That was way before the uh, AOR FM stations ruined, tried to ruin everything. And NEW was the only thing left in New York right. that you know was able to do it. Or With that said, when we moved to Queens when I was like 13 or so, mm-hmm. when FM radio came in. Now, I'm not sure what year it came in, but I just I definitely remember being in my bedroom in my parents' house mm-hmm. with my big headphones. Remember we had big headphones? Yeah, oh, sure, sure, sure. And it was, I think it was a realistic turntable and, and mm-hmm. maybe the, the tuner, right? Yeah. Call it a tuner. Lafayette tuner from Radio yes. Shack. That's what yes. I had. <laughs> and, and hey, listen, Lafayette, that's where I got my first electric guitar. Because Lafayette really? in Queens on Northern Boulevard. Yeah, That's funny. The, they, and and we cool. used to get the big book every year that they put out. And I would <laughs> stare at the pictures of the guitars. 
And then my mom finally got me one of those electric guitars, which I wish I still had. I post a picture of it sometimes. I know you have. So who was your Yankee hero as a kid? Oh, definitely Mickey Mantle. Yeah. Because I was born October 20th, 1956, which is his birthday and triple crown year. Right. So Mickey Mantle was, in fact, I have a letter from the Yankee organization because I invited him to my birthday party when I was six years old. And I got a letter back with the hat and the bat that said, thank you so much. Mickey's back in Oklahoma with his family. And then when Mickey retired, now I remember vaguely, I mean, I definitely remember seeing him play first base. Right. But I think because of my age, maybe I started going to games 64, 65, Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. So I don't really remember him in the outfield that much, like my brain, but I remember seeing him on first base. But when he retired, then Bobby Mercer took over. So I was with Bobby. And then I became friends with Bobby and I'm still friends with Kay and Mm -hmm. Todd Mercer and and Tori. Yeah, Joe's a great guy. I actually trained his kid. I think Kevin Kelly is going to join us in a little bit. Might have been involved with that at Merrill Lynch. Well, full disclosure, I'm one of those Met fans, but I don't hate the Yanks. I respect their accomplishments. Yeah. I did get thrown out of Yankee Stadium 2000 for allegedly stealing a bottle of water, but I, I don't want to get into that. It was very ugly. Uh, the funniest thing was they threw me into the office and Kenny Rogers, the singer, had sung the national anthem. And I wound up sitting talking to him for half an hour wearing my Tom yeah. Seaver jersey, which is why they threw me out. But, you know. No, it was it was well, the first Met Yankee interleague game. It was the one that El Duque threw right, his mitt. Right. Yeah. Oh, we're talking about late Yankees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. This yeah. is though. That's yeah, two thousand. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we moved to Flushing Queens. So we were in the shadow of Shea Stadium. Shea, sure. Right. And the Blackhearts. When I was with John, we played Shea Stadium in nineteen eighty three opening for the Police. So it was. I think there was actually. You know, I've since found out there might have been somebody on before us, but I think it was REM, us, and the Police, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think so for that show, because I was actually at that show. And then you also did a show. I was living in L.A. in 83 and trying to think, was it Hollywood Bowl? I I know there was. No, I don't think we played the Hollywood Bowl. I was trying to remember where it was. Might have been might have been the Roxy. I don't know. But there was a couple of shows that I did play the Roxy with Susan, that band Susan. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Oh, Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. But we played Shea Stadium, and mm-hmm. my joke back then was, yeah, people would say, what was it like playing Shea? And my sarcastic Bronx humor was, it was <laughs> fabulous. I would have rather it be Yankee Stadium. But Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Somewhere in Cleveland in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is your first guitar. So tell us yeah, how you funny. got it. What kind of music? Uh, obviously, you said you'd love the British Invasion, but is this a mom got me my first guitar kind of story? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, all roads always lead back yeah. to the Ed Sullivan show yeah. you know, with people of our demographic. And that was a family for people that don't know. It was a, a variety <laughs> show. Ed Sullivan was a reporter mm-hmm. and he started this variety show that was on every Sunday every night. Sunday night. At eight o'clock, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole family would sit, sit around oh, and watch it. it because on that show would be a magician, uh, right. would be the comedians of the day. It would be like the cast of like Topo Gigio. I mean, the cast you know. of West Side Story. It right. Would be, you know, it would be all over the place. But he brought over, I mean, he had Elvis on there. Sure. And I got a good right. Elvis story about that too. Okay. And the Beatles and, mm-hmm. and the Stones and right. this and that. But so when I saw the Beatles and the Stones in 65, I was, so now we're starting to cross into other things here about recovery and stuff. Like, I mean, I felt slightly left of center when I was a kid. Like I felt Mm -hmm. different, you know, I was into music, right? heavy. And back then, how many people were into music when you were a little kid, Mm -hmm. but I had my little beetle haircut, you know, my braces (laughs) (laughs) and I probably had glasses at that point. And now I have them again because I don't care. 
the contacts have not been taken out since the beginning of the pandemic. Exactly. So I felt a little left of center. I was very shy back then, you know, quiet. My mother's joke was like she could leave me with like a like reading a book because I always love to read and come back two hours later. I was still sitting there reading the book. But that was it. So we saw the stones. And as I said in my induction speech back in 2015, I said, when I saw the stones, they looked like I felt, right? Mm-hmm. Which was different. The girls were screaming. So that's right. like a plus for a shy person. That's always a win. And finally, when they went back to Ed, and it was not only that, and I've heard Stephen talk about this too, it was like the Dean Martin show when they mm-hmm. were on. When Dino rolled his eyes, like to mm-hmm. me, that was like a plus. It was right. like, oh, different generation, cool. So when Ed Sullivan would kind of, you know, he was nice to them because it was ratings. But he, but was, he made him sing, let's spend the time together instead yeah. of let's spend the night together, if I recall. Yeah, and, it, and he didn't treat them <laughs> like he treated Jackie Vernon. Let's just Right. Yeah, that's theory, true. Right? He, put his arm around, he didn't put his arm around and say, oh, Jackie, I love that, you know. It was kind of like he had to go because there were ratings, right? Yeah. Well, to me, as a guy that felt like didn't fit in in my own way, like I, I just saw something in them. And then later on, when I saw them do Jumpin' Jack Flash for the first time, when they had the, the psychedelic lights and the face paint and stuff, right. I was just like, oh yeah, that's for me right there. That's it. You knew it. And, you and were, I asked sold. my mom, I asked my mom for a guitar and her boss, she worked at a handbag company. You know, I, I can't remember the timeline, how soon, but he mm-hmm. gave her an acoustic guitar to give to me. I think it might've been for my birthday or something. And yeah, so I had that guitar all these years. It was in my basement during Hurricane Sandy. So I couldn't grab everything. Right. When we knew that it was heading this way. That was 2012 and you were inducted in the Hall of Fame 2015, right? Yeah. 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 So I grabbed, I got most of my stuff out, but the top of the acoustic kind of peeled up a little bit, but I gave that to the uh, Rock Hall. So they have that. That's so cool. And they have my I Love Rock and Roll, my Black Les Paul that I used in Susan because that's when I bought it. I bought it at Manny's Music on West 48th Street. Of course. Street. And so that's also in the Rock Hall right now. And I was happy to see that they have a new exhibit. So our stuff is out again, you know, because they keep rotating. Of course, of course. So for those listening, if, if you obviously like music, you love the incredible riffs on all those amazing Joan Jett songs, like I Love Rock and Roll, I Hate Myself for Loving You, I can go on. A lot of Ricky's riffs there. And you had a hell of a run there with Joan. And, you know, I want people to know, there's a hell of a lot more there because there's a Roger Daltrey. You guys, you wrote together and you, did you tour? I know you did a bunch of TV shows with yeah, Daltrey. Well, let me just backtrack for one second because people always ask me, the solo on Hate Myself for Loving You was Mick Taylor from the Stones. Now we became friends, me and Carol became friends with Mick and his manager. But not and, live. <laughs> no, no, not, not live. <laughs> but um, it's just a fantastic solo. And yeah. we did, a, um, Mick was kind enough to be part of this. There was a thing that the local 802 put on called the Musician's Assistance Program, which was the first, my first, you know, I was already in recovery at that point, right? Mm-hmm. We did a, a charity thing and put together like a thing and helped them put together a thing, a show. And God, I don't remember where it was. I'll have to ask Carol. Mm-hmm. But Mick came and played. And then, you know, I, I asked him to play on, you know, if you, hey, you want to play on the record? So that's his lead solo. I'm playing at the end on Hate Myself for Loving You. So I just wanted to put that out there for people. Well, that's all right. Um, when, I, when I saw you live playing, I saw it was you playing it. When yeah, I no, saw no, no. It, I yeah, saw... that's true. What was the question you asked me? No, Daltrey. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Roger okay, Daltrey so, experience. Okay, so I, I left the Black Hearts in 91, mm-hmm. and I, I had myself a publishing deal with Sony Music. I wanted to stay home for a while. It was a long time to tour, you know. Oh, yeah, no, you guys toured right. all over the world, like 
Yeah. And and I I wanted to just try some other stuff. And and I was clean already at that point. So I got myself a publishing deal with Sony. So I was going to sit home and write songs. And I got a call from my friend Gerard McMahon, who's an old friend. And he was producing Rogers Rocks in the Head record. And he said, you know, I think you'd be great for this. So the first thing he did is come down to the Bag It Inn on maybe West 4th Street, something like that. And it was a little bar down there, a little club. It was a bar. It wasn't a club. It was a bar. Yeah, right. And he says, me and Roger will get up and play. So we got up and we did. And I met Roger because we opened for The Who. Yeah, yeah. I know you guys opened for The Who. I saw saw one of those shows, too. But um, we played Born on the Bayou. I'm not sure what else we did. We probably did something else. So that was our like the first time we actually played together. And then we sat down, we wrote some songs, co-wrote some songs, and we recorded half the record, the Rocks and Head record here in New York, the other half in Abbey Road Studios. Um, nice. And that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. And then we did a radio tour. We did some TV. We did right. Letterman, Letterman, right? Yeah, we did yeah. Dennis Miller. We did Regis right. and Kathy Lee. Although right. Regis wasn't there that day, and it was, I'm going to say it was, was it Dickie Smothers? It was either Tommy or Dickie. Obviously. Tommy or Dickie, one of them used to pop in. <laughs> yeah, there's actually on YouTube, there's a, there's a picture of us doing the uh, single for it. Great. Days of Light, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was the Daltrey thing. And we got to, listen, I, let me just state right now, I'm the luckiest guy in the world, right? You know, And I don't want to be like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing Lou Gehrig's speech. No. I'm talking about like, I've had a blessed career. You have. And you've I've, played, I've with, played with so many people I grew up listening to. I know? mean, you know, Ian Hunter, I mean, who was another hero yes. of mine. We talked about Graham Parker and the rumor. And I just, you know, from Mott the Hoople on, I just loved Ian Hunter. And then you wound up. Jay Clemens, at least, was Clarence's nephew playing with Bruce. But, you know, Mick Ronson is gone. And you go, I, I believe, to Scandinavia and play with Ian yes. So after the Daltrey thing was completed, I get a call from Ian. You know who I knew in passing from just being around and stuff? And he said, I'm going to do my usual Scandinavian tour. And I believe Mick had just passed away somewhere around there. It was 94-ish, 95. Once again, I'm an idiot when it comes to years. But um, he said, would you like to come with me and be my guitar player? And then we'll pick up like a rhythm section over there, you know, keyboards and another second guitar player. And I said, yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. obviously I grew up on Ian Hunter. So, all right, so let's stop right there. And I'll just tell you that back when I was 16 years old, part of my history is hanging out and playing in bands in the city. And one of the places I used to hang out was Max's Kansas City, which is a oh, famous sure. Famous yep. rock and roll club. Yep. There was like CBGB's. There was Mercer Arts Center. It was Max's Kansas City. I was not really a CBGB's guy. I, was, I wasn't I was like a punky kind of guy. I was more mm-hmm. like British, Rod Stewart in the Faces, Humble Pie, Stones kid. Yeah. So like I was like a velvet jacket and like spiky hair. Yeah, that's why Springsteen things. played a lot of early shows, 72, 73 yeah. up there. Yeah. So we would go down to Max's and I remember seeing Mott the Hoople at the Eurus Theater. <laughs> Their first time, uh, it was three nights. I think I was there two nights. Queen, it was the Queen's first shows in New York. And so we knew when a band would play in New York, you would go to Max's afterwards because the band would show up at Max's because that was the place. Hence, if the rock and roll bands were there, then the girls were there too. Oh, of course. And the lasers, then they have laser lights? Yes, yes. And in the back of Max's, in the back room, they had a special table where they would put the visiting rock stars, like a big round table. So I could close my eyes now and see me and my friends from Queens hanging around, standing around Mata Hoople. So that, so you got that, that visual. 
All right. And then 20 years later, I'm playing all the young dudes with Ian Hunter. <laughs> just, uh, but, it's just, wow. I mean, that's just yeah. like you said, you're blessed. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been tremendous. And, and a shout out to David Bowie for writing that song. Oh, right. So we go, to, so we go to Scandinavia yeah. mm-hmm. and there was a tour booked and the tour was supposed to be, we're on a boat, see, and we pull into different docks in Scandinavia and there was supposed to be a stage set up and that's how we would do the gigs. But something happened with the promoter, as one would. Some, you know, something would happen. They gave us the choice. Do you want to just can it and go back to America? Or do you want us to give us a week, stay in Stockholm, and then we'll rebook the tour in clubs? And also, we played some hotel lobbies in, like, really cool little Scandinavian towns. Where, like, you know, the hotel lobby was empty when you got there, and then it was packed. Right. It was so cool. No. Oh. So we stayed in Stockholm for a week. And by then, you know, I was in recovery. So I would actually go to community support group meetings in Stockholm, which was really cool. Is that the um, Stockholm syndrome or is that, I guess that's something else. That's, that's something completely okay. different. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so that was the Ian Hunter thing. <sighs> that's so cool. So before we get to what we really want to get to, my problem is I love music so much. So I just, you know, even though this is a financial show and I have to keep reminding myself yeah, every the now perfect, and then that's I'm the perfect the person to have on a financial show. Well, exactly. But that's why, that's why I get to do this. And that's why <laughs> Larry King said to me the first, that's my sarcasm. first time I did, Hey, first time I did my own radio show and Larry was the guest, you know, he said, Mitch, this is your show. You get to decide. So even though I'm calling it financially speaking, I do what I want. But, I, you know, I, it was interesting because when I was talking to um, Johnny Resnick, who lives down the street from me from the Goo Goo Dolls, and yes. he talked a lot about some financial mistakes early in his career and getting taken. And I'm just curious from the money side, early on in your career, as things are starting to build, were you getting good advice? Were you just winging it? You know, I mean, we can get into this because this is a drugs and alcohol thing. You know, no one ever says no to a rock star. But on the money side, what was I'm curious what was going on? Well, without getting into detail, like, yeah. I mean, I have obvi- I obviously wasn't of right mind until 1987. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just happy to be out there playing rock and roll. And I didn't really think of the future. Right, right. People always ask me, what advice do you give to people coming up now? And my, I only have one line. Read the fine print, baby. That's my one ad- piece of advice. I wasn't paying attention. And I whatever I got, I was spending foolishly. We lived in fabulous apartments, mm-hmm. but I, I wasn't, I mean, I didn't, you know, you have to go back to the family thing. Like I didn't have a father, like the difference between me and some of the other guys in the band, like Lee Crystal, God rest his soul. You know, he came from a family, a business kind of family and his father kind of guided him how to do that. I didn't have that on my side. So I just, the money came in and the money went out, you know, yeah. and, and that's the way it was. But listen, all of these things, are all part of the fabric of an entire life. <laughs> you know, failure to me is you learn so much more from failure than you do from successes in my mind. That is the truest words anyone could ever speak. Yeah. So, like, so I'm, I'm not a rich rock star, but I, yeah. I, I work enough. I have fabulous platinum records on my wall. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I would have saved more, but like, really, I mean, who cares? Well, and it's a different world today anyway with streaming. It's all about touring. That's the only money left in that world unless you're, you know, you're lucky enough like a Taylor Swift or something. But in general, it's it's the touring that... And the music business has changed. Mm-hmm. Like, we're fine. You know, yeah. it's fine. You know, I get to do these sometimes. I remember there was a scene in... Let me... I don't want to confuse my movies. But it was either with Zero Mostel. What was the movie? It was the movie where Zero Mostel was a comedian... Was Woody Allen in the movie? 
it was about the it was about when he was blacklisted. I'm, I'm yeah, talking. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great film. It's I, I know the movie. It's right. Actually, I think it's the last movie Mostel made. Yeah, and he with, ends uh, his yeah. own life in the movie. Right, 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 right. But it's either that movie or another one like yeah, it where yeah. he's sitting with somebody like Milton Berle or something. He says, yeah. I can't go up. I can't go to the Catskills and, and they're giving me a hundred dollars. And Milton Berle says, "Hey, you're worth what you're worth when you're worth it." Right. You know. So the deal, and I'm probably screwing that whole thing up. But the thing is, like, when I sometimes I get to do things that money wise are really great, and sometimes I do things because they're fun, and some sometimes it's service and recovery, and sometimes, it, like, there's a whole bunch of different stuff I get to do. I won't do anything that's not fun at this yes. age. I'm the same way. So. All right, let's get really what I wanted to talk about. Well, because, wait, 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 wait. Let me give you one good story. Your show business. Give me a guy. story. Come on. Okay, let's, let's go back to Ed Sullivan for a second. All right. So me and Elliot Easton from the chorus, we go to Les Paul's birthday party. All right. Okay. And and it's, it's already starting good. <laughs> yeah. So it was when he had the club uptown by Columbus Circle. Okay. Okay. Because there were a few different clubs. Mm-hmm. And I remember, so Scotty Moore was there and we wound up sitting with Scotty Moore. And Scotty had a little, you know, he was drinking his scotch, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he's telling us stories and stuff. And he starts telling us a story. He said, I remember when we came here with Elvis that first time and we did the Ed Sullivan show. And he said, and I remember coming down and we were staying in a nice hotel, man. And we came downstairs and we went to breakfast, man. And he started to, he started to describe to me and Ellie Easton <laughs> the breakfast buffet. Right. Like they had four kinds of eggs and they had any kind of bread you want. And they had juices. They had orange. They had cranberry. They had. And he's going on and on. And my brain and I'm looking at Elliot and my brain is going, wait a minute. You're talking about the Ed Sullivan show where they only showed him from the waist up. (laughs) (laughs) Like the most famous broadcast, you know, the part of rock and roll history. That's one of the most famous like shows ever. And instead of talking about, you know, he's not saying, you know, they would not show E. They would only show a piece of him, and he wasn't allowed to move. And he and, just, and they made him sing a couple. Of, no, he was talking about the eggs. <laughs> and I found, and I found that so charming, you know, so like grassroots, down to earth. I thought oh, was, the movie was the front. It was bugging oh, me, so front. I had to hit IMDb. It's 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 That's a fantastic right. movie, you know. So I thought it was. Yeah. I thought his conversation to us yeah. was so wonderful, you know, because I was like, and after he le- he got up and left, me and Elliot were going. Dude, he's talking about the Elvis show where Elvis couldn't be filmed from the waist up. He's talking about the three different kinds of of juices they had. It's amazing. It's just fabulous. It is. And I, you know, I had the opportunity to work for David Suskind for a little bit. And uh, when I moved back from LA and talk about stories, I used to, I mean, this is right at the end of his life. He uh, actually had a a major drug problem and that's deadly why he died. A lot of people don't know that, but mostly narcotic issue, but he was a genius, absolute genius. We did a bunch of one man shows for PBS with like James Mason as I think played Truman. We did uh, Mike Farrell played JFK and James anyway, Mason. Exactly. And um, one of the That'd highlights awesome. for me of that whole experience. Well, not only the fact that Joe Papp would just walk in the office and we had this beautiful, the Piaget building. I mean, I, I you know, I was 20, 24 years old, uh, maybe making uh, $20,000 a year, you know, in this ridiculous office that was amazing. But I got Joe Papp walking through. And then my job was to go through all of the old Playhouse 90s to pick out stuff. You know, it was David Susskind was involved in all of those stuff before he even did the talk show and Khrushchev. And, you know, it was just being around these geniuses and hearing these stories, yeah. listening to Joe Papp telling this, you know, and uh, it's just it's it, it's. It's crazy. And uh, I feel so lucky that, you know, every time I'm a fly on a wall to hear 
stories like you just mentioned, it's, it's just amazing. But you are a recovery warrior. Beyond being sober for 33 years, you've made this your mission in life to help others in recovery and to quote your own liner notes. And folks, uh, if you don't know what liner notes, they, they <laughs> are what's written in the album or the CD. And to me, they are probably some of the most important words ever written. And, and I do and, take a lot of time writing them. And you record. clearly do. And, and I, I just love That's so why I wanted to quote this one line. You, know, you said that reaching out for help is the starting point. And thankfully for you, those of us who dig your music, you know, are really glad we made that choice. So that's why I wanted to bring into this conversation a colleague of mine at UBS and a fellow musicologist. This guy does an email to the entire firm every day, and he starts out with a new lyric. All right. He knows I'm mad if it's not Bruce, but we get over it. But, right. you know, it's, and it always ties into what's going on in the world. And it's never political or anything like that. But it's just right. it's just so much fun. But on top of being a great guy and, and doing his his gig at our firm, UBS, he's a lot more qualified than me to really facilitate some of this conversation. So, Kevin Kelly, welcome to the show. Kevin has a master's in clinical mental health counseling and is licensed here in the great state of New Jersey. He's worked in his spare time. And it's hard to know that this guy has spare time at uh, Summit Oaks Hospital right here in Summit. So, Kevin, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know you had a couple things that you thought would be yeah. talk about Ricky. Tired, tired, tired. From chasing shadows in the rain. Well, thank you, Mitch. And Ricky, it's an honor to be the rock and roll royalty. I don't. I really don't have much to add to the rock and roll part of it, except I did go down to Lowell's Records in 1969 on a Saturday morning to pick up a copy of Abbey Road that was first released. So I couldn't wait to do that. I was a huge Beatles fan. And uh, I guess, you know, when Paul McCartney came into town last time and Springsteen and Van Zandt came on stage with him at the end to sing the song that they got cut off with over in, uh, in England, and he sang A Day in the Life. And the whole garden sang it with him. And it was just such a moving experience. My other rock and roll story is in the mid-70s, I'm not really sure what year it was, my friends and I, we ended up going to CBGB's one night. We just hung out at the bar doing whatever. And then as we were leaving, said, hey, listen, maybe we'll catch the late show at the bottom line, right, on 4th and Mercer. Right. So cool. we went to the bottom line, not knowing who was there, get there at 1230. Thought the slate show would start at 1. The guy says, no, it's Late show started at 12. You guys are late, so uh, it's $15. This was like 1976, just at $15. I said, how about I give you 10? <laughs> he said, no, 15. So we no paid doubt the 15. it was Alan, Alan Pepper was probably telling you that. <laughs> maybe. One of the so owners. We paid the 15. And like, you know, we, maybe we had $30 on us, maybe 20. And so we go into the bar and the place is packed. Like all along the bar was crowded. The only open spots to stand were to the bathroom all the way to the other side of the stage. Right, but right. we had to walk by the musician. So there was this guy dressed in a bikini, and he had some women in his band, and they were topless. So we were thinking to ourselves, this is the greatest band in the history of the world. So we go over there and, and watch the time. This guy was one of the greatest guitar players. We were not musically ignorant, but we were nowhere near the degree that you and Mitch are. But still, you know, we were somewhat sophisticated. But we were able to watch this guy at 3 o'clock in the morning my friend Mike got his name, and I was just like so mesmerized. We went home. The next week, we're at some dive bar in Orange, New Jersey, and my friend Mike says, hey, here's this guy we saw at the bottom line, Prince. 
<gasps> it was Prince. I don't know if it was Prince wow. of the Revolution. Look at that. But it was wow. Prince. I have and, not heard that story, Kevin. Yeah, Holy I mean, it was you know, like we we're like, what the hell? And there he was. It was it was amazing. It was just a, such a unique experience. And we we had a semblance of sobriety where we were able to remember most of it, you know. So yeah, yeah. so what Prince I was do, a force of nature. Yeah, it was just lucky. And CBGB is just nuts, but anyway, yeah, I'm an addictions counselor at Summit Oaks Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital in Summit. I've been doing it now for about five years. I get a lot out of it. I guess my statement to you is, and what I told Mitch I was going to talk about, it's like, you know, yeah, there's 12 steps and there's this and there's that. And, you know, we've come so far just in my brief experience with with treatment and recovery, you know, using medically assisted treatment, taking the shame out of it. But the big thing is for me and the way I deal with patients is the stigma attached to this potentially fatal chronic disease. A stigma that is not associated with other chronic diseases like diabetes, like hypertension, like asthma. You know, if, if, if an asthmatic stops taking their, stops using their nebulizer and goes out and smokes and drinks or whatever, and people say, well, how did you get another attack? Well, I stopped using my nebulizer. We'll start using your nebulizer again. In recovery, if you happen to use again, people say, well, you got to try something different. You got to try something different. No, 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 no. It's a chronic disease. There's a propensity for this chronic disease to come back. And Ricky, the interesting thing about it, and the more you get involved in this, the more the data becomes presumptive, is that substance use disorder, I don't want to use relapse, reoccurrence, is, is just as prevalent or not prevalent as hypertension, diabetes. Our rate of relapse, so to speak, is the same as any other chronic disease. Matter of fact, we do a little bit better than high blood pressure in terms of people that are under treatment, leaving the treatment and coming back. We do better. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is tell the patients that, hey, you know what? You're doing the right thing. You walk through those doors and I I admire you and I respect you and and I feel for you and I want to help you. My final comment, I'd like to hear your thoughts. In substance use disorder, and it's still very active, even in my hospital, I have these people that are Neanderthals in terms of treatment, they'll say, oh no, well, if you keep using again, we have to, you have to seek a higher level of care. Saying, in essence, saying you failed the treatment, when in essence, the treatment fails you. And that's what people have yet to get their arms around. You know, how can, you know, I'm here to help you. You have cancer, you have asthma, you have this. The doctor says, I'm here to help you. It's substance use disorder. It's like, well, we'll do whatever you can, but you have to want it. You know, if you don't want it, then we're going to send you to another level of care. And it's just so many different planes. And I can certainly understand why stigma is one of the leading reasons why people use again. So I want to throw, I did a lot of talking, a lot of topics, but your, your thoughts on that. Well, I think you're right about stigma. And that's the thing we're all trying to take out of the equation as much as possible. It's like when I do my recovery music groups. So I do a couple of different things, right? So you got my recovery, 33 and a half years, or whatever it is at the point. And then I do my recovery music groups, which means I go around the country, or I did before we stopped going around the country. And I bring my acoustic guitar and I go into a treatment facility, uh, detox, juvenile detention center, schools, whatever. And I play the songs that are on my two rock and roll recovery themed records. And the reason that I started doing that is because of the reaction I got from people, right? I figured, all right, like, because I never, dude, I've been around a long time in recovery. Like, I never thought to combine music and recovery, although we do know Uh it. 
obviously in the realms of science and doctors mm-hmm. and certain diseases that music heals, right? I mean, they, mm-hmm. use, they use music for people that with dementia or they ask the family to bring mm-hmm. music, the person's favorite music, and they, see, they kind of see a re- reaction. Okay, we know that. But I didn't realize until I started to combine music and my recovery. So how that started quickly is I, I have this one song that was the final song on Clean Getaway, which is the first record that came out in 2017. It's called Broken is a Place. So the tagline is Broken is a Place I've Already Been. You know, I'm not going back. And I did a quick, it's on the record, but I, when I first wrote it with my pal Richie in Florida, I did a quick recording and I put it online, right? And I started getting a reaction from people around the world saying, dude, you told my story. Mm. Wow. You know, like, wow, I didn't know. I mean, I, how do you, I didn't know anybody it felt like that. Like, yeah, like that's what made a light go over my head. So take that. And also uh, about 10 years ago, people started asking me to do these charity benefits for treatment facilities and also, like my friend Woody Geisman up in Boston, he, had, he runs a treatment place called Right Turn. He used to be in the Del Fuegos, an 80s guy. <laughs> I did a bunch of cool things up there, a couple of, and I've done some in Florida. And every time we finish, this is another thing, the second half of that that got me to do this. You know, I'd, I'd linger outside, I'd chat with people because I'm friendly. And, and they'd say, man, it's so cool to see you in recovery. Like, I'm in recovery, or my, I, unfortunately, I lost my dad to this disease. And it's like really hopeful to see that somebody can stay clean. And so, and I went, and I started to go like, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I can actually be part of the solution here in my own little way, right? So I started writing more songs. Once I got to like six or seven songs, I reached out to a treatment facility called Sunrise Detox, right? They're in Jersey. But they were in Florida. I met them in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, man, what if I came to your place with my acoustic and did a group? Like, I didn't even know what I was talking about. But, uh, <laughs> and it took me six months to realize what to say and what not to say in my group. Sure. Right? Triggers wise. I yeah. started doing it. And the people, I'd see them in front of me. They'd laugh. They'd cry. They'd, you know, they'd come over and say, dude, that was like so cool. Like they, we have suits come in here and people from meetings, but that was so different. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're okay. just like a regular rock and roll guy. And, and I said, I think I'm onto something here, <laughs> you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I started doing it. Now the records came from the fact that after each group, Clients would come over to me, you know, either I'd like I'd sign their AA big books or something or whatever it was. I'd bring guitar <laughs> picks. I'd bring guitar picks and stuff. Right. And they'd say, um, where do we get this music? How can we take this, this message home with us? That's what led to me doing the records. See? And then when I put the records out, I got such a good reaction again from not only the recovery community, but they're basically, look, take all the, the message away. It's just cool rock and roll because that's right. Right. Hopefully that's but there's identification there. They're identifying with that. Yeah. And that's where the, they derive, you derive strength from that. But that's why I, and also, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but I got certified as a drug and alcohol counselor two years ago and also a recovery coach. I took the whole thing in one like bulk Terrific. thing. Congratulations. Wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. I haven't had a chance to put it to use yet. I worked like before the pandemic, I worked at a great place out in Staten Island called Christopher's Reason for a couple of months until, uh-huh. you know, they had a let go of the last person hired, which was me. Before this all happened and before we all got locked down, I go out to a place called, a wonderful place called Turning Point in Patterson. Yeah, Turning Point, sure. Yeah. Well, so once a month, I do a, two groups out there. You know, uh-huh. I, I play for the guys and they all know me. Hey, Ricky's here. Like, and unfortunately, some of them are return visitors. So they know the songs. <laughs> which is, uh, that's a good uh, thing. Yeah, no. And I always tell yeah. them, so when I do that, my rap that I learned, and it's, it's an honest, but it's, you know, it becomes sort of, uh, you're reading from something in your head after you do it a long enough time. Like I know what to say to them. 
I always start off by saying, listen, man, I know what works for me. I'm into 12-step stuff. That's what worked for me for the last 33 years. But listen, I'm not here to push that. Whatever keeps you on the right side of the grass rocks. Like Mm -hmm. whatever. I don't go to church. Go to smart recovery, join a bowling league. Right. Whatever keeps you mm-hmm. sober and not dying. That's the thing you want. With that said, I've learned a lot from being in the 12-step group. And one thing that comes from that, the community support group meetings, mm-hmm. is a big part of the thing that keeps people sober. Yeah, the 12 steps help change you all of the underlying stuff that makes you want right. to drink and, and drug. You know, uh, the emotional stuff. Because right. there is the clinical side, which is the fact that my dad was an alcoholic and his father was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So right. there's the part you of know, my, there's right. the part the, of my the way, brain the way, that's wired yeah. a certain right. way. That and, when and I, there's a lot of reasons for that. You right. Know, so it could be genetic. Well, it's, there's, there's the three, three prong attack: the genetic, the right. environmental, the social. But what you're talking about is what we categorize as recovery capital. So you have clinical treatment where we provide medically assisted treatment. We get people to talk about to, to remove the shame. To, to accept the guilt, remove the shame, you know, to get into a routine, to find recovery capital outside, as you said, whether it's smart recovery, 12 step, whatever it is, whatever it is. Yeah. And I tell and, them, and, and, and I tell them, key element. And, and there's a, there's a thing going around where, where some people, you know, I see the only time I get into arguments on social media is when I talk about politics or the disease. So I try not to talk about either one. <laughs> when you say it's a disease and then you go, yeah, yeah. that's an excuse, you know, Okay, so here's the deal with that, the way I see it. You're responsible. You're not responsible for the disease you have. You're responsible for your recovery, see? That's, right, yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's the way it works, right? So, and, yeah, and, you, and Ricky, you take have Take it a one thing. step further. Take it one step further and feel that for people that, that are on medically assisted treatment. So, you right. know, sometimes a Narcotics Anonymous does not recognize Suboxone treatment as sobriety. So we just tell the patients, well, find another meeting because it is right. sobriety. And there's a real contradiction within within recovery itself. But, you know, where we are in the cutting edge right now is that Suboxone, Subutex, Sublocate, whatever it is that's keeping you sober and keeping you on the right side of the grass, if it's working for you, is sobriety. So, yes. And the thing is that, you know, I have a thing, a disease that like the way I'm wired, like because it's in my family, that if I do the first mm-hmm. one of something, it triggers an obsession and a compulsion. Now, I know this for a fact because it, it now we're way past drugs and alcohol. But like you see, like if I see a guitar like on an ad, right? And I go, oh yeah, that's gorgeous. I need that guitar. Yeah, but I, sh- you know, I shouldn't really do it. I'm paying off my credit cards or that, you know, I got plenty. Well, what happens now in social media is like, it knows that you like that ad. So it keeps coming up in your timeline. Everywhere, yeah. Right. Now for a guy like me, there's only a certain amount of times until I, I have to buy the guitar. Like it's, it's like putting it in front of my face. Right. Like, so I feel, I start getting this obsession mm. thing, and I have to make phone calls. So that's to me what's great about the community of recovery where like I have people that I talk to. Like I still go to community support group meetings through this. That's what's helped Mm -hmm. me sane through this this pandemic Mm -hmm. because there's a thing that we all identify with each other. We lean on each other. You're having a hard – like in songwriting, we have a saying like you know, when two people write, it's like if one person has nothing one day and the other person has something – you know, one day you're the lead dog, the next day I'm the lead dog, you know. So it's, but it's the same thing in recovery. Sometimes I'm struggling and sometimes you're struggling and we kind of pass it back and forth and that's how we stay sober. 
So yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think it, it's I wanted I wanted to point out because Ricky's being pretty humble. He's also given away twenty five hundred copies of his last recovery record, Clean Getaway. Um Jesus, that's and, wonderful. Which is really just just terrific. Yeah. And, well, I just uh, like I like to bring copies of them to my groups and I and I give them to the clinical director. And I this is what I say to the clients. Okay, here's the deal, dude. If you want to take this music home with you, I brought a bag of them for you. So when you finish treatment. On your way out, you're going to get a copy of it. Not if you leave right. early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Mitch, you know, just to add to that, yeah. Mitch, that, you know, what Ricky's doing is in essence, and it's, it's easy to say this, but there's a deep meaning to it, is saving lives. I have a patient that comes in regularly. He, he has a high degree of recidivism, which is fine because he keeps coming back. That's the miracle. He keeps coming back to treatment because he knows, as he told me many times, there's a bag of fentanyl out there with my name on it. And if I don't have Narcan, and a Narcan may not even work depending on the, the, the potency of the fentanyl, you know, it's going to kill me. So I know that's out there. and It's only a matter of time before I get that, before I get that and shoot that bag or snort that bag. So when, when you're when you're giving this stuff fat, it's not it's, it's something that somebody maybe prevents them from picking up that bag or buying that bag and, and maybe making a phone call or seeking treatment before that actuality happens. So when you say you're saving lives, goddamn right, you're saving lives. Yeah, Ninety thousand people died of drug overdoses from May of 19 to May of 2000. Right. All time record. Get into that. And guess yeah. what? The number from May of 20 to May of 21 is going to be higher. So I agree. Make no doubt about it that this is a huge, huge problem. It's growing, and the littlest gesture could save a life. So, so that's that's the, that. I'm glad you ended with that because the thing is, like, there's so many angles to recovery now that I'm just adding another one, which is just music. And why do I keep doing it? Is because I get a message from somebody who gets my record, and they listen to. If you listen to On Sobering Times, the last song on the record, I always like to end. Like my record's like a Beatle record, like with like a ballad that just drifts off into the night. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and there's a song called Just Like You. And why did I write that song? I wrote it because I felt that I was sitting in front of these people that just got into treatment and they're looking at me going, what does he know, man? He's been sober over 30 years. Like He doesn't know my pain. Right. So I wrote this song called Just Like You that takes you through, the three verses takes you through the different stages of like somebody asking for help, me, then me asking, you know, going back and me asking for help. And the, one of the lines is, I know right now you don't believe in miracles. Oh, I'm getting the chills. I know you don't believe in miracles. I was just like you. Mm. So that's that's the message. And that's I have a hard time getting through the song because it's well, like, and it's the reason I'm in when when we do end the show, I have that's the song that I'm gonna end the show with because oh, yeah. that song got to me emotionally too. That really I mean, these are albums that rock. I mean, these these two records yeah, let's not forget others, that. but they really, really rock. But that <laughs> oh man. And, and there's no preaching allowed on my record. No, not even close. Good. What about with other musicians? I wanted to ask you that before we talk about the record. So over the years, you feel like you've been able to help some other musicians? Because I mean, if I'm asked, that's the yeah. thing. That's what you learn right. um, straight up, right? Is is I don't chase people. If somebody, right. like, like during this pandemic, I've gone on my social media page because I'm not anonymous with my recovery. I look at the word recovery as an umbrella term. You know, there are 4,000 different places now that weren't available when Bill W. and Dr. Bob started AA in 1935. So recovery is just a term, see? I don't talk about how I do it in public. That's for one-on-one -on -one stuff with people. Yeah, I say I go to community support group meetings, but you know, I'm trying to respect the traditions of 12-step groups and stuff like that. Right. But right. the word recovery, 
So there's a lot of conversation about that controversial shit, but my method is like, hey, what am I going to, what can I tell you, bro? You don't like me? <laughs> don't listen to my stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to help people. So the point is when somebody listens to that song or one of the other songs and messages me and says, hey man, I wanted to use last night, but I listened to so-and-so on the Clean Getaway record or something and I decided to put it off another day. As a songwriter, oh, dude, you can't ask for anything more than that. As a guy in recovery, wow, cool, bullseye. Mm -hmm. So the point is, is if my songs at least give, I look at it like I want to make people laugh, cry, and think. All I'm doing is I'm putting cards on the table. Like I'm not telling you you got to do this to stay sober. I'm not telling you you want to do that. You, if you don't, you're going to. I'm just putting the information in songs. Like this is what it was yeah. like. There is a solution. You don't have to live like that anymore. Right. I don't live like that anymore a day at a time, you know? And I just move forward. That's my whole thing. I'm very easy going with it. I'm just trying to, whoever loves music, this is my line when I'm talking about the record. If you're struggling, you're going to definitely hear yourself in these songs, you know? Hmm. If you're in recovery already, you're going to realize why you're in recovery when you listen to these songs. And if you just if you just love rock and roll, you're gonna love the record. Listen, I love what my buddy Jay Lustig uh, said in a review of your record, how you play to your strengths. And for you, that's being a wickedly talented guitar player. And that's what you, you know, you're going to get in Clean Getaway, and that's what you're getting in Sobering Time. So why don't we start with the title of the new record? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's kind of obvious, maybe just to think about it. But but I understand that, you know, it kind of hit you in a certain way when you really weren't sure what to call this record. So, you know, it took me two years to do this record, but not really. It's just scheduling. If I look at the dates, I was in the studio with Bob Stander, my co-producer out in uh, Long Island. Right. Maybe a month and a half. But because of his schedule and my schedule, it took almost two years. So you finished the record. What do I call the record? So on my phone, I have like 70 titles. And probably 63 or 64 of them suck. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of them have been used already. Yeah, exactly. You know? So like That's I would go, when I I'd come up with something and I'd go to Carol, I'd say, oh man, this is great. Look at this. Uh, and then I Google it and I'd say, there's like nine songs and two albums with that title. So then I, just, I happened to be on the phone with somebody talking about current events. And I said, man, these are really sobering times. And I just went, oh man, really? I just racked my brain and it was like sitting there waiting for me, like on a, like an apple pie in the window. And that's why we called it Sobering Times. Yeah, that was a great title. Um, Kevin Kelly had to leave, wanted to say goodbye. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us because I knew he'd be able to bring this. So you mentioned with Sobering Times, you work well, with Well, let me, let me just say, oh, yeah, Kevin, I, I just wanted to say to him, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to, I really want to work in the field as a counselor. And I know in New York, you need like 6,000 hours and I'll be like 85 by the time I get that, the way things are going. But yeah. I really, once this is over, I want to start like putting it out there that I want to mm -hmm. do it again because I well, really I'll connect I you really with Kevin. It. Definitely. Well, I can't do anything in Jersey. Yeah. I'm, I'm licensed. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Well, he, he knows people. Every, he's a Jersey guy, but uh, he knows. And also, all. my problem back th back then is I get to do these. I get called to do these events, or I'm doing my recovery music groups in places. Mm -hmm. So it was hard. But I'd love to work a few days a week as a counselor, get my hours, mm -hmm. you know, and help people in that thing. I think I would really love to be a recovery coach in the entertainment field. That's what I would love. Because well, I, that's a great business model. That's a great idea. Because I could talk about what it's like to be on the road, not sober, 
and sober. And so start like start with the Sobering Times app, and yeah, right. you know, and 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 create videos about it. I mean, that's you know, you've got so much to say, and so much to and, say, and yet nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you collaborated with some big names. Uh, you had Richie Supa from Aerosmith, Willie Nile, who I believe, I think it's a law now that Willie Nile has to be on every record released. I'm not <laughs> quite sure. I, and I'm joking because I love Willie. And, he's a, and he's such he, a sweet guy. He is such a sweet guy. And House of a Thousand Guitars, he had it first. As much as I love Bruce, that you know he did write that song. <laughs> when I started this record, so Clean Getaway, I co-wrote a bunch of songs with Richie. I don't know who else did I do. And I did, I did a cover of Kicks. Right. Oh, you I know, love that. Now, part of this is business, right? Yeah. It's like I, when I finished the record, I said, well, how am I going to get this on a freaking radio? Mm-hmm. I said, well, let me do a cool cover song that has to do with, you know, recovery somehow. And Perfect I'm sitting, song. And I'm, I swear to you, I'm listening to Underground Garage in my car, which is one of my favorite things to do. And Kicks comes on. And I just went, oh, my God, there it is. It's like one of the first, you know, anti-drug songs, right? Rock yep. and roll songs. Yep. Yeah. So I cut that, and sure enough, Stephen played the hell out of it, which it was the coolest song in the world. Great. So that yeah. was the last. Yeah, record. yeah. No, that I, I, I that's just fantastic. For this record, for this yep. record, mm-hmm. I wanted to expand the lane a little bit. So I wanted the songs to be less hit you over the head. There are a few on there that are seriously hit you over the head. Like there's a song called "Poor Me." P O U R. Yeah. Okay. Why did I write that? Once again, I'm in my car. A lot of stuff happens in my car. And once again, I believe it was Stephen was playing one for my baby, one for the road. Now, I, I grew up on Sinatra, too. And I said, man, I need one of those songs, like a bar song. And I yeah. went my, I picked up my guitar and I wrote Poor Me, mm-hmm. which is about a guy sitting at a bar, you know, yeah. pour me another drink. Right. So some of them are specific and some of them are a little bit wider, like so, like I come back stronger. I come back stronger. Yeah. Which I, what I wrote with Richie, that yeah. has nothing. I mean, if you didn't know it, it's just about picking yourself up, dusting yourself off. And but stuff. even even Recover Me, which is such right. a such a fantastic rock song. And the the duets with the two with you and Willie are just so great. But it's not in your face. It's just it's just that's just, that's yeah. just great music. And, 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 and dude, you know, if it's in your face and you don't like yeah. it, it's too bad. I mean, I, honestly, honestly, you know what? I uh, my dream would be to see you, Willie and Bruce playing that at the Light of Day Festival one year in January in Asbury. OK. <laughs> Cover me into recover me. Yeah. So what happened is <laughs> I decided I wanted to try to write most of the record myself because I felt like I was really getting a handle on how to write this kind of song. And I've been writing songs. I mean, my first song cut that I got as a, a songwriter was by a band called Photomaker mm-hmm. in 1978. You know, they cut one of my songs. So I've been writing. Chris Farlow has cut a couple of my songs, the Blue British Soul Legend. But I wanted to try to, because as a songwriter, and this probably has to do with a little bit of low self-esteem. It's like, oh, I got to ask this one to write with me. I got to ask this one to write. And then, no, you can write yourself. Yeah. You know? But you got I got to talk myself into it and say, yeah, I can. So but then you can bring these guys in. You, you know, brought in Tommy Price from, from the Black yes. Hearts well, on, yeah. on Hear My Song. And uh, I mean, that's, but, you know, speaking well, of covers. With, so yeah. with Willie, let me just yeah, say with, with Willie. Willie. Yeah. So, so I decided I was going to write with just a few people on this record. So I wrote, I come back strong with, with Richie. Mm-hmm. Emily Duff is a wonderful artist in New York, and she does a lot of stuff uh, down, in, uh, down south, too, mm-hmm. recording-wise. She's just yeah. really cool. Yeah. So I wrote, I ain't going to live like that anymore with mm-hmm. her. Now, the gang vocals at the end are actually gang vocals from, they were clients 
at this place that I was working at in Staten Island as a counselor, I said to the owner, hey man, I'm finishing up this one song. I need a bunch of singers. Why don't you get them on a bus and bring them out so we could show what it's like to be sober and have fun. So that's actually clients from Christopher's Reason singing uh, the gang vocals. It was cool to get them out there and they had a great time. But when I do that live, when I do that in treatment, and you got 60 guys sitting there, you know, or the women's group that I do, and I say, all right, man, let me hear it. I want you to testify. And, and like 60 guys go, I ain't gonna live like that. No more. No. It gives you the chills. It's like, yeah, testify, man. Tell me about it. So, so that I wrote with her. Richie, I wrote Stronger. And I wanted to write with Willie. Because I've done some events in the city, like sort of special shows. Like my friend Joe Hurley will put on a, a really cool show. And I, went, I actually went over, his, I went over to Willie's house. And, and he lives in, a, in the village, great place in a walk up. And he said, dude, like top floor. So hit stop halfway. And sure enough, I had to stop halfway and sit down. <laughs> but um, we sat down and we, so first thing is I sent them the music to recover me. No title. I said, here's the way I work. I'm going to send you music and me mumbling. That's what I do. I mumble. And every time I mumble, somebody says, what did you say in that second verse? I'd say, I don't know. He says, no, it's great, man. We got to figure it out. Right. And then we start there. He, as soon as I sent him the music, like 10 minutes later, he, he texted me back. He goes, recover me. I'm like, oh, cool. Okay, that's the title. So we wrote that and we wrote a song called Light of Truth, which is uh, an extra song on the record because I had too many songs. I had to figure out what to put on. And I also, listening back to it, I thought we stuffed too many words into the verses. So we wrote two new verses. And now in my new Pro Tools thing, I'm going to re-sing just those two verses. And as far as a cover song, so once again, it's like, all right, I need another cover song so I can get some airplay. Yeah. But thank the Lord and Mr. Van Zant um, and Dennis Mortensen, of course, they played uh, two songs. They played, I had uh, the coolest song in the world, world with Together, a right. big lamb song. And he Great played Quitting Time also, which right, starts right. the record off. Yeah. But I said, I, I need a cover song. So, okay, what should I do? Mm -hmm. But the cover song that wound up on the record was The Bottle Let Me Down by Merle right. I right. love it. Ugh. Okay, so, but the one that it was that I really have that in the, my pocket that sounds amazing. So I'm sitting in my car again and I'm listening to the garage and I hear. And I'm like, wow, reach out. I'll be there. Reach out. Yeah. Fabulous. So we recorded that. At the same time when the record was coming out, there was a freaking like a doctor's commercial with that in New York with a very, it wasn't very soulful, but it was a recording of Reach Out. I said, well, this is a weird time to put this song out. So I'm, I've held it back. But now what I'm going to do is to see if I could release a single, uh, like bonus tracks or a separate single of Reach Out and, and Light of uh, Truth, the Willie Nile song that I co-wrote. So that's be, that story. That'd be so great. And and, and listen, you, you give a nod to Arlen and Mercer with Poor Me, which is... Uh, uh, you know, again, you know, the, the subtlety of the title, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just so great. And then you bring in some of your Southside Johnny friends, like, uh, oh, like course. Jeff, <laughs> you know, Jeff Kazee always Jeff plays. Man, is so, uh, what a, now, now, a hell of a, 
Hell of a great shout out to Jeff. Great guy. Right. Because I uh, played with South for about a year I when know, Bob, right. Bobby Bandiero went out with Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, right. South yeah, called you, me. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, me too. Um, of course, Liberty DeVito, who I think has the same rule as Willie Nile that has to appear on every album. Yes, um, yes. And, and just about every benefit. And, and, uh, and when I, they sent me Southside's songs, I never learned so many songs at once in my life. Yeah. It was just endless. And then, of course, South would wind up wind up doing songs that they didn't send me anyway. Of course not. That, that's, 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 <laughs> it that's certainly classic, kept me on my toes. Classic Johnny. That's, yeah. that's so so true. But so Jeff Kazee, Jeff yeah. Kazee's played on all three of my records, and also Andy Burton, who plays with the Disciples of Soul. Right. But he was out with Steven when I was doing right. the keyboards, so Kazee played yep. on everything. And it was fun. Uh, I've known Ricky from uh, an organization. We had Dave Wish on earlier uh, last year from Little, Little Kids, Kids Rock, Rock. And, yeah. and Ricky was part of a fantastic band that we had at these shows. And for anyone that, you know, wasn't able to get to any of those shows, I mean, they, they were just, I mean... They were incredible events. Money was raised for a great cause, but I mean, you know, uh, from dude, Brian, the, last, from, the last one I got to play with freaking three songs with Smokey Robinson. I know. Wow. I know. Come yeah. on, man. Really? Yeah. yeah, I know. And you got Brian Wilson dope, and you got, you got guy. You know, Alice Cooper and just everything. Obviously. Yeah. That was the year Joan played too. Yeah. I didn't um, play on that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. You were not. That's right. But you know, we had some great shows. Just, they were a lot of fun. Yes, so, yes. all right, let's throw in a little lightning round here. So, since we're Facebook friends, I know we both actually share a great love of the amazing comic genius of the greats of the 30s and the 40s. Oh, um, yeah. That, you know, people just don't recognize enough and the Abbott and Costello. So what's your favorite movie from that era? Well, first of all, let me say that I started off when I was a teenager. I was in this band called New York Central, right? And I think that they had a, a single out on RCA also. But to pay, you know, to make money, we were the rock band in the Catskills at the <laughs> Pines Hotel. Okay. <laughs> now, when I look back now, I mean, it was awful then. I guess we thought because it was, you know, they they kept all the musicians and the comedians in like a damp, you know, <laughs> dusty old section of the hotel, of course, yep. with like rust on the faucets and this and that. But when I look back now, I realize what a great experience it was. And for me, I'm like an old soul. Well, I'm actually an old soul now, but I mean, <laughs> like my history, I love everything from the 20s on up. You know, like my favorite comedians, like my favorite writers, Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, you know, right. like George S. Kaufman, you know, right. like I'm knowledged in all of that. Uh, I'm knowledge. That's not even correct, is it? I'm yeah, but you're school. I'm school. Schooled in in the, right. in the right world. Yeah. Because, so I mean, so it's hard how to did I how stuff. did I get into all that stuff? Well, Channel because, Eleven, probably. But <laughs> well, yes, but also I was reading stuff like Harpo Speaks when I was 14, 13. Right. But let me get not get away from the Catskills for a second. Sure. So after we would play the teen show, like in the teen room, right? Mm -hmm. I would go, or some of us would go into the big room, and we would watch the comedians. And it was the last of a great era. Now, most of them were guys that worked regular jobs during the week, and they were comedians on the week and singers on the weekend. I just loved it to death. But then you also saw Charlie Callis, Jack Carter, Jack you know, Carter, sure. people like that, right? Yep. So at the end of the night. It, dude, it was just like Broadway Danny Rose. Yeah, exactly. Everybody would wind up in the coffee shop, right. which was open all night. And yeah. I would sit there as a kid. The guy auditioning all... in that room, you know, and we tell him this. And we, oh, yeah, and scene. now we're those guys. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. My friends tell the stories. 
But I would sit there and listen to them talk about, I remember I played the Palace Theater. and I, I, I was, used to kill with that one. <laughs> yes, I, it was two shows, and then it was me, and it was Buddy Hackett, you know. <laughs> and I would just sit there with my mouth open, just, you know, loving it. And let me just say, there was a guy, Mal Z. Lawrence, who was also in Catskills on Broadway, right? Mm-hmm. I remember all the years later, when I would do my acoustic shows, and like at the bitter end or wherever I was playing and, and, and I would play, go out and play acoustic. I would go up to the lighting guy, you know, cause I'm just a, a normal, a naturally, you know, I got good timing, comic mm-hmm. timing, you know, and I would say to the guy, listen, I'm going to ask you for mood lighting. Don't do anything. Right. So now where did this come from? This was Malzi Lawrence. I saw him do it a million times in the, at the Pines Hotel. So I would play a song. I said, I'd like to do a song called Wide Open. This is a beautiful ballad. This would be great if I could get some mood lighting, Mr. Lighting Guy. And I would wait and I'd count in my head. And then I would go, he wouldn't do anything. And I would go, that's perfect. And the whole crowd would laugh. And I was so excited because like, it was Catskills comedy, which he probably took from Gracie right. and George Burns. Right, right. Or, or, you know, so like I've always been in love with all of that stuff. I always watch Gracie and you know WC Fields and right. Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers. Oh, like so the Marx we Brothers. We could talk hours about that. Right. So the Marx Brothers. That's what I grew up on. And reading every book yep. that each one of them had. Yeah. And especially Harpo Speaks, which mm-hmm. I read three times. And he led me to George's Kaufman. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, and that led me to the Round Table, mm-hmm. the Algonquin, and that right. led me to Dorothy Parker and Robert right. Dantley and all those people, and Alexander Wolcott, who was the mm-hmm. critic. And that's how my world works. Yeah, my that's, brain works. that's and that's a great way. Listen, it's a great way to be. And and those, you know, I mean, I'm sure you and I could sit here and probably do the who's on first routine if we had to. Yeah, I, I mean, could you do know, it. these if are the these, scripts. I would do yeah, it. Yeah, heartbeat. You know, yeah. you know this. You just these things just become part of. You know, I mean, I. Hooray for Captain Spaulding. I, I mean, you know, I was nine years old singing that. I was the African a, Explorer. I, I was, Did someone exactly. call me Snorro? All right, all right, all right. I mean. I was lucky. I had a I had a wonderful aunt who not only taught me everything about England and history and got me really into uh, you know becoming a bit of an Anglophile, but really got me into the great great comics of the 30s and the 40s. And I could sit and watch Rebecca, you know, with Joan Fontaine for, for you know, and it's 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 very interesting. And the story, and I love TCM. Yeah. yeah. But and I love like what's okay. So what's my favorite? You movie? should sit down with Maureen Van Zandt. The two oh, of you could we, go yeah, on we, for hours. I know. On I know. This. We, she loves this. Sometimes I text her. In fact, I said to her, you know, I would rather be, if you asked me, what would you rather be? I would have rather have been a baggy pants comic <laughs> than a musician. <laughs> I would. Like, I would just like to do, you know, how much time do I have? You know? <laughs> but not now. I'm right. talking about back then. Like, yeah, like course, a guy that played course. the, like, let me play the Keith Albee circuit. Right. You know, and what I was saying was like when I was out with Joan and I would go around the country and we play these wonderful theaters in small towns that I that I knew were vaudeville houses because I read about them in the books. And I said, oh, my God, the Marx Brothers played here when they would do when they took at the uh, you know night at the opera on the road right. before right. they filmed it. Right. Because right. that's what they would do. They would play it. They would before they, they in theaters. It. Right. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then they would fix it. Mm-hmm. That's why George S. Kaufman sat there in the theater that one time. And he was with like Alexander Woolcott or somebody and the guy's talking to him and, you know, the Marx Brothers just totally ad-libbed, right? And George's Kaufman was brilliant. And the, the guy's talking to him and, and Kaufman goes, shh, shh, I think I heard one of my original lines. 
<laughs> oh man listen i love talking about this stuff it's just such a yeah it's I, a I year get gone by it. but it just it just it, it never ends and you know it's still out there in celluloid and there's plenty Dude, to watch there's a know. guy i've been posting and i know you've, you've seen them mm-hmm. don't ask me why but um i just actually joined a cat skills group on facebook <laughs> <laughs> you know but i also joined the joey heatherton appreciation group <laughs> Yeah, I belong in a freaking home at this point. Hey, you know what? But somebody's got to appreciate Joey. And, and I, and I mean, I keep, come on. I keep post, And I always remember when Bob Hope would bring her out on those yep. social shows. He said, I just want to show you boys what you're fighting for. <laughs> that was his line. Listen, like, why do of, I remember that? You know? One of the great, you know, working for Larry King was, was a hell of a lot of fun. But, but really the fun part for me was. was I read his books uh, too. Yeah, well, listen, and, and getting to meet Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis. Oh, and, my God. And the night the night I met Sid Caesar still is one of one of the funniest nights of my life, just being able to chat with him because I literally grew up watching, you know, not just the, your show shows, but just, just, just everything the man did. And then uncle Milty. And, and these are the kind of people Larry was having on radio. Yes. And that's me, why the, I watched him all the time. Yeah. And for me, the highlight probably of my entire friendship with Larry may rest in peace was at an event that Larry put on with his cardiac foundation and right. I got there early because that's what the Slater's is what we do. And I'm standing there and Larry's there with Rickles and Rickles, uh, Larry introduces me and he goes, what are you dummy? Yeah, the thing doesn't start for three hours. Don Rickles insulted me. I got on the phone. I called my dad. I said, that's it. I can die. Don Rickles just insulted me. Okay. Me so dummy. let me, let me, dummy, let me, the greatest album ever. Let me jump in. <laughs> I go to me and Ken Dashow from Q104, sure. who I've known for ages. We had this thing we haven't done in ages. When any of those guys played Westbury, we, we were there. Like mm-hmm. Malzi Lawrence, we saw Frank Gorshin, Charlie Callis. We saw the head of the Friars Club in New York. Um, oh, my God. I could see him. All of a sudden, my brain went dead. I know anyway, what you mean. Yeah, we, I went we to, go to, to that with Larry once. <laughs> we go to see – oh, yeah, I was a Friar for like a year. It was like yeah. one of my favorite years. So we go to Westbury to see Joan Rivers and Rickles, right? Right. Okay. So it's Ken and his wife, Jane, and Carol, my wife and me, and we get there. So we go to a steak dinner out in Long Island, I guess, which everybody does. Mm-hmm. And then we go to see the tickets, and Ken says, front row, right on the stage. Oh. And my brain just went, I am so dead. Yeah. Oh, forget Rickles it. Rickles is going to just see my hair. Yeah. It's going to be it. Sure enough. Mm-hmm. He wasn't on stage 10 minutes before he came <laughs> over and insulted me. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, how great was that? Yeah. I, listen, my parents took me to the Waldorf. I think it was a New Year's Eve or something when I was maybe seven years old and Phyllis Stiller played and she came out and she started just making fun of me. I, I mean, it just, I just remember, these are things you just never forget. So Last question I love to put on this show. I borrowed from Tim Ferriss, but I think you're probably going to be able to wrap up everything that that, that we talked about um, from the recovery standpoint, which is kind of the reason we, you know, I wanted to do this show, even though we could talk cat skills all night. So uh, wait a second, Freddie Roman. Oh my God. <laughs> wait, 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 don't go. Don't start yet. Yeah. I was like you with that other thing. I had to Google his name. So me and Dash, I go to see Freddie Roman, right? And Malzi Lawrence, right? At Westbury. And we go backstage and Freddie Roman is, and now I used to see him in the Catskills 25 years earlier. Sure, sure. So Freddie's, he's, he's the, not the dean. I, can't, I forget what they call it of the Friars. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is the dean. And he's got 
he's backstage. He's got a drink in his hand. He's got the, you know, the bow tie. He's had his tux on, but the bow tie is open. The bow tie is open, yeah. Yeah, so that's like the after show bow tie. Mm -hmm. So right right away, I'm like, this is so good. (laughs) And he says to me, he says, could I get you anything to drink? Um, You know, do you want anything to smoke? Like kidding around. Right. You know, and I said, no, thank you, Freddie. These days, only my hair is chemically dependent. Because <laughs> it wasn't white then. I was Right, like, right, know, was, right. Okay, so there was a pause. And I said, hair, chemically dependent. And he goes, I heard you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I love that. He just just shot me down and it was I couldn't have asked for anything better than that. There's nothing, there's nothing better to be. I mean, if I could just... Uh, In the driest... In the I driest way. Exactly. I heard you. Yeah, I heard you. I heard you. <laughs> All right. So Tim Ferriss and his book, Tribe of Mentors. I stole right. it from him, but I love it. Yeah. So a magic genie comes down, gives you a giant billboard, Ricky. Yes. For all the world to see. What would your message be and why? We can and do recover. That's to all the people struggling with addiction out there. I can't say it any better than that. We can and do recover. It's one day at a time. And there's all the help you need is out there. So reach out. You got to reach out, you know, if you're struggling. Don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be ashamed to reach out. There's 25 million people in this country approximately in recovery and probably another 25 million that are trying to get into recovery. And on a business side of it, I would say my album, Sobering Times. Wait, is this, is this ad free? Up yeah, there? this is free. Yeah, these are all free. Yeah, okay. Don't charge any ads. Okay. No, I mean the one that's the big billboard. Yeah. Yeah, of course it's free. It's free. Wait, is it in Times is it in Times Square? It'd be it's the whole world's gonna see it. So of course it's Times Square. Okay, so it's um my record Sobering Times, which once again, uh if you're struggling uh with with any time a type of addiction, you're gonna find your story on one of these songs. If you're in recovery already, you're gonna understand and, and remember why you're in recovery. And if you just love rock and roll, you you will not be disappointed. So I released it September 25th, 2020, limited, just my social media. That was my 33rd anniversary of recovery. Right. And But it's coming out through BFD slash The Orchard worldwide on April the 9th. Okay. So you'll be able to on get CD it. On CD or vinyl? or If they want to do, now it's in their hands. So if they want to okay. do vinyl, they'll, they can do vinyl. But it's going to be CDs, so. digital, you know, it's, yeah. but it's going to be on all of the online all right. portals that everybody knows about, plus physical stores around the world. But if you want a signed copy and you want the CD, uh, Clean Getaway CD, you come to rickybird.com. It's very simple, rickybird.com. I always throw some swag in there, like a guitar pick and some stickers and you know, all kinds of stuff that I got. Um, nope. and, uh, and there you go. So that's, that's the billboard. But the all main right. thing is, you know, end it again with like, uh, we can and do recover. Now that's beautiful. And I can't thank you enough. And we will, we will of course link to uh, rickybird.com and keep you up to date on what's happening. And, and when the record uh, comes out, we'll probably release this show right about the time. I'm hoping to time this uh, right around April 9th, which happens to be my son's 28th birthday. So we're going to, we will uh, probably release this right about the time the record comes out. Could I end with a good uh, Bruce story? It's not a Mitch Slater show without a Bruce story. So one of those little kids rock shows that there's some photos probably I've posted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was the uh, one where they honored Steven. That yes. Night. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. it was Bruce and mm-hmm. Elvis Costello, yeah. Michael Barr, right. who's now a dear friend of mine. That was the first night I met him. You know, I was in the house band as mm-hmm. usual. With Liberty, I yep. can't remember who else. Muddy Shoes that played with Southside. I mm-hmm. can't remember who else was there. 
Well, Max Max was an MC that night, so he didn't play. Right, I know that. Well, Liberty he and Maureen MC, but Liberty played right. Yeah. And, and um, and uh, was Kazi there? My Kazi might have been there. Might but have been. In, in any event, yeah. Uh, Southside was so. Dion was there, who's another yeah. dear friend of mine. Ugh. And Southside was there. Okay, so Bruce is there. So like, you know, Bruce is coming, right? And I never met Bruce. Um, I know we did we did Light of Day in the Black Hearts. Right. You know, we did yes, that. Yes, she song. did. Yes, she did. But uh, so now all of a sudden, like that, you can feel this buzz, right? And there's like there's no. All of a sudden, I turn around. There's like nobody around me. I'm standing on stage. I was yeah. tweaking my guitar. Right. Bruce walks in. This is the rehearsal, or is this? Yeah, the... it's rehearsal. No, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. He walks in and he winds up standing kind of next to me, right? And there's really nobody else around. You know, it's just like this. And not a word is said between the two of us. Like, and I'm going, wow, he's so shy. Like, I just, <laughs> this is so weird. It's like awkward. I want to say, I said, hey, how you doing, man? And I'm doing good, man. How you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but there was not a lot of conversation, right? So I, then I said, and it was just turning cold. It was like, I don't remember when it was, but I remember the weather was changing. And I said, hey, it's leather jacket weather, huh? And all of a sudden he perked up and he says, yeah, man, I got my leather on. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, I love this. I That's love right. This he wore time. leather that night. Yep. It's, yep. I, I love this time of season. And that was all yeah. I got out of him. <laughs> hey, listen, that was such a cool night. That was my first year being involved with Little Kids Rock. And uh, it was a great, know, absolutely incredible night. And Yeah, and I got to play and, one of my favorite yeah. songs with them. Right. Which was a they song about the, being in a band. Yeah. My mind is like where the bands are or, or no, 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 Oh no. They played. Um, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah. 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 Oh, like that's one of my favorite. That it song is one of the, it is. Itself. Yeah. I mean, I've obviously seen it so many times with the three of them. I've seen it with the yeah, two yeah. of them. I've seen it just by with Johnny. I've seen it just with Steve and I've seen it just with Bruce. I mean, I loved, I loved playing with, I loved playing. That was incredible. That was just Johnny taught me a lot about like just relaxing on stage. He changed me like, putting bands together like about just just have a good time relax have a good time yeah. well that's 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 johnny and, and it never changes so ricky again thank you so much and and also when you're on the website you got to check out there's some great videos the sandra bernhardt light of day that was uh, at, was really fun that was at cb's yeah yeah we did i love rock and roll and i yeah i don't know why we no, no you did i love not light of day i love rock and i love rock and roll, roll. Yeah, yeah 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 so yeah. The, the the girl that was playing that night Lourdes, I think her name was. Right? right, 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 right. I think she got in touch with me. She knew me or Carol. And she said, you know, Sandra Bernhardt's coming down. You want to come down and do um, I Love Rock and Roll with her? And I said, yeah, sure, man. That sounds like mm-hmm. fun. I'm always up for a good time, brother. Hey, well, well I can't wait because there's, there's still a lot of good times to come. And we're we're getting there. And uh, I think by by the fall, we'll maybe we can get some of these shows going, get in the cutting room, get any anywhere. I, I would just, just like to put anything. my I just like to put my glad rags on again. Yeah. You know, I mean, how long yeah. could you walk around in sweatpants? I mean, today, I know. you know, they can't see me, but I'm wearing a, I put on a Stax shirt. Right. Stax Volt shirt, you know, so I got, I'm representing that here. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my espresso, uh, but yeah. it would be nice to put on the whole outfit with the scarves and the thing with the tight pants. and the- Yeah. Yeah. I asked Maureen, does Steve walk around the apartment with, with, with the whole thing? You know, and she says, yeah, he, you know, he just likes to stay in character, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I'm, I'm like always, I'm, I've been walking around for a year in like Rolling Stones pajamas and like, yeah. <laughs> like a cutoff white t-shirt. <laughs> I know. I know. It's been crazy. I want to thank Kevin Kelly also for helping us out this week and really appreciate having him make this episode more meaningful. Kevin's been a great friend and and we just talk music all day long when I guess we should be talking uh, about the market. But anyway, special thanks to Lady Bird, Carol Kay, 
also known as Ricky's wife, who runs the fantastic, I want to get this right, Chaos Productions, like Get Smart Chaos, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, all right, that's very cool. Go Bernie, to P- Bernie Capel. See, I just threw there it you go. randomly. Uh, all right, well, listen, I, I worked on a Love Boat special, if we're going to go there, 1983, right after I appeared on Love Connection, which is a whole other episode. But I had the opportunity to work on a Love Boat special, and I met Bernie Capel, the whole gang, Gavin McLeod was one of the nicest guys I ever met. We actually met years later on a love boat cruise that my wife had to cover, was writing a story about. They were terrific, but the biggest jerk when I worked there, and I'm just going to throw it out there, Robert Wagner, didn't have to be so mean to me. It really, it, it didn't have to be. Well, and not two weeks later, you know, And two weeks different. later, two weeks later, the Natalie Wood thing happened. Jeez. So it just, I don't know. I guess I- Well, Bernie Capel, I did the I did a signing at the Chilla Theater Convention in Jersey, and my table was next to Bernie Capel. And more than anything else, that was exciting to me. Like, I didn't even want to sign CDs anymore. It's just, I just wanted to talk to Bernie Capel about shows. I think I'm going to have to end the show with the Love Boat theme. I wanted to end it with Just Like You off Sobering no, Times. but let's, let's pull it back. Lay it back in, Mitch. Uh, Lay it back right. in. All Just right. like it's, you. It's, that's how we're going to end it. Uh, it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful album. Folks, have a great week. Remember, when saving your financial future, turn on some great music, turn on some Ricky Bird, some great records, and pay yourself first because you too can be... Uh, what's How do I say Just Like You? Give, give me a good intro into the song, Ricky. What, I'm, I'm your writer now? Yeah, yeah, you're going to be my writer. Come on, you write music. I didn't uh, like that. That didn't work. I need, I need, I need Ricky Bird introducing just like you. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, fabulous. Now my Neil Simon brain is kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I got to go eat a bagel with a schmear to think of this. I can't just think like, yeah, ladies this, and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, this this this, uh, this song just like you is the fact that we're all connected you know, one way or another. And that's that's the whole point. It's about identification. We're more the same than we are different in this world, even though they want to make you think we're not. You hide in the shadows to keep out the pain the light brings with all that rings true. This life you've been living is a deal that you've made between the devil and you. To get to that feeling of there ain't nothing you won't do Well, I know that you think you're the only one I was just like control what harm can a little taste do well a head full of denial beats logic every time i was just like you Same on my knees and heart rent.